Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How are we doing at the 11 a.m.? Glad to have you in the house if you're online, uh, listening via Unfiltered Radio, watching. Glad you're here. Um, so just to make sure we didn't, like, um, overestimate this, do we have any, f- how many football fans do we have in the house today? A few? Like, this is a big deal, right? Uh, do we have any Cowboys fans in the house? There's some great uh, churches um, in the neighborhood that you could check out this way. Uh, Glad to have you with us. Um, I am obsessed with football. I was joking about this the last couple of weeks, but I saw their programming team, and they really, they fought me a tad on this. I was like, I'm not sure everybody's into football. I'm like, there are. Like, most people are. We should do something. So anyway, um, it's a little over the top, but um, that's fine. 8.20 is just, it's a huge uh, time tonight as the Bucks crush the Cowboys and get um, their Super Bowl title run underway. All right. That's that's enough. All right, so um, brand new series called The Big Church, and I'm going to dive in, but the whole like, idea of this series is that the church is a big idea, and it's a really big deal. But here's what I understand before I set this up, and honestly, I have so many of these conversations, and there's so much um, that I get to do and people I get to interact with outside of even just Centerpoint and a radio and the audience that comes through that. And so I get so many different perspectives, which I love. I'm kind of fueled by that, encouraged by that, sometimes depressed by that. But like when you start talking about the church, people are all over the place. Because here's what I understand. It's a big idea. It's a big deal. It also comes with big emotions. And for some of us, when you hear the word church, it actually brings you back to the time that your divorced mom was kicked out of a church, um, the time that you just didn't feel welcomed. It maybe brings up feelings of church trauma or even abuse. For others of you, it's an emotion tied to like hip, you know, hypocritical behavior or judgmentalism or, or over-politicizing. And like you've experienced the church that seems synonymous with like politics or a political party or, or power grabbing, or like you could go on and on. You were mistreated, you were hurt, you were bumped out. And so it's a big idea, but it comes with really big emotions. And if I were to be really honest, which I generally try to be, like even the last couple of years in this cultural moment, and some of you, you listen or watch outside of the United States, I'm going to speak specifically of the United States and the West. There's been so much that has happened. And I, I, there's been moments where I've thought, I love the church and I love Jesus and I love being a pastor. But there's been moments where like, I wish I could separate myself from all of this stuff and, and somehow just follow Jesus and, and not have any connection with kind of the greater um, branding of the church and what it means to follow Jesus or evangelicalism at large, because there's been moments specifically over the last couple of years where it's just been embarrassing. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. So I don't know if that's some of you, but that's been me. And then yet I've emerged from some of those emotions and some of those feelings and looking culturally and going like, we, we're just embarrassing sometimes. And still feeling like this thing that Jesus launched and created is worth fighting for. 
And so my card's on the table. I, I love the church with all of its craziness and all of my desires at certain moments to go, I just don't wanna be associated with that. I love the church and I love our church. I love what so many of you are doing to create a different kind of church, an alternative to church for so many people who their usual experience was not good. They walked away a long time ago and like, you get this, but I guarantee you for some of you, your your thinking when you hear the word church or your feeling, because a lot of times it's more of a feeling, around church is very different than what the church in the first century felt and thought. It's very different than what Jesus followers in the first century thought and felt when Jesus launched this movement. And by the way, they didn't think denomination, they didn't think politics, they didn't think style, they didn't think liturgy, they didn't think, they didn't even think about crazy off the rail Christians. The movement of Jesus, the church, actually got started around one singular event that we try to talk about a lot that launched the entire thing. In fact, if you're a skeptic, this is the thing to look at. This is the question to answer, and there's a lot of great questions, but it's not what happened to the dinosaurs. That's a, you know, that's a good question. It's not all the other crazy stuff in the Old Testament that you maybe have trouble understanding. The question is, is, did Jesus actually predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off in history? That is the foundation of everything. And if he did, if a dude predicted that he was gonna die and come back to life and then did it, game over. You gotta follow that guy, even as you're trying to figure out the dinosaur question. You have to follow the guy that rose from the dead. And when the church got started, it got started around that one singular event in history. And the thing that united people in the first century was not all the things that we think about. All of those were secondary. Some of them didn't even matter. It all centered, it was all unified around this idea that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, go. And the movement got started and began to move and that idea was enough and the church exploded and it got big and it had a big impact on day one. Now here's the thing that you're gonna see, you're gonna think maybe this is kind of semantical, like this isn't that big a deal, I'm overemphasizing it, but I'm telling you, some of what has gone off the rails and continues to go off the rails with the church is actually associated with a misunderstanding of the word church. So can I just give you like a little history for a second? Okay, thanks, I'm gonna do that. Um, so if you were to go to the Greek New Testament, where church shows up, the Greek word for church is the transliteration, I'll put it on screen, ekklesia. And ekklesia in the Greek New Testament, if you understood it, would be translated an assembly, a gathering, a movement of people. And when Jesus launched the church, Jesus launched a gathering or a movement around a simple idea, a simple message, and an event in history that changed everything. And it was a gathering. It was an assembly. It was a movement of people. And then all of a sudden, over time, it went from a movement to a location. And it went from a gathering that had so much energy so much power, so much excitement. It went from a gathering around an idea to a hierarchy. And eventually it went from a simple message that pretty much anybody could understand to a message that was complicated and in some cases hijacked. And I'm not gonna do it today, but if you were to study or you know church history, it led, no overstatement, it led to some of the most embarrassing and tragic moments in church history. And a lot of it stemmed 
from a misunderstanding of the word church that redefined everything because eventually the, the English word in your Bible was not taken from the Greek word ekklesia, a gathering, a movement, an assembly of people. It was taken from a German word that came from the Dutch in about 300 AD. And the word is, is this, kirch or kirche, Lord's house, or literally ritualistic gathering place. And so when you read the word church in your English Bible, and I know you never think about it, but that word comes from this idea from the Germans of a ritualistic gathering place. It really should be lowercase Lord's house. And when church shows up in the Bible, that's where it comes from. And it's no overstatement to say this, that a really, really bad translation led to some really, really bad theology. Because a ritualistic gathering place, a Lord's house, a sacred place was not what Jesus launched. It's not what Jesus predicted. It was not how Jesus got all this started. It was an ecclesia. It was a movement. It was a gathering. It was a congregation. It was an assembly of people. And over time, this really became a throwback to Old Testament temple, you know, old religious thinking where it became all about a sacred location or a sacred place rather than a movement. And it led to all kinds of theology and all kinds of crazy thinking that I'm telling you still infiltrate and affect and impact what we do today. Because what happened is over time with this mistranslation, it became all about the sacred location or the sacred building. And whoever controlled the sacred location or the sacred building controlled the scriptures. And you look at history, whoever controlled the scriptures controlled and in many cases manipulated the people. And by the way, in church history, it was always men, always men always men. And whoever controlled the building controlled the scriptures and whoever controlled the scriptures controlled the people. And in some parts of history and certain parts of the world, whoever controlled the people and the scriptures ultimately controlled the government. And all of a sudden, this movement that Jesus predicted and launched around a simple idea, simple message, and an event in history didn't move any longer. Suddenly it was hierarchical and it was ritualistic And in some cases, it was immoral and destructive. And it was not what Jesus intended. In fact, some of you, it's the reason that you've resisted church for so long. It's why some of you are here and you're like, I'm liking this, but this is very different than what I grew up with. And here's what I would tell some of you. The very things that you've resisted about the church are actually the things the church should have resisted. They weren't what Jesus intended and it's caused you to walk away or question or maybe I love Jesus, but I'm not sure that I'm down with this. And then this guy came along by the name of William Tyndale. Right here, check him out. He's coming. They never never smiled in pictures, but that's William Tyndale. The father of the English Bible is often um, how he's known. And in the 16th century, he came along, he was a brilliant linguistic scholar. And so he decided to take the Greek and the Hebrew text and translate them into English. And his whole goal was that ultimately people, just everyday people, common people would have access to the scriptures for the first time. That no longer were they being told what to believe or told what to do, but they couldn't see it for themselves. No longer were they being controlled and manipulated. Whoever had the building had the scriptures, whoever had the scriptures had the people. William Tyndale knew that God had intended and launched something different, and he wanted to get it into the hands of all people, which was scandalous. Because the moment he did that, it took the legs out from under the power of the church. And this is my other really honest moment. 
The church historically, in many cases, when we have gone off the rails, it's because we have desired and clung to power more than we've clung to what Jesus intended for this thing to be all about. And when the church, you can say this for yourself, when the church has gotten power in any culture, everything has gone backwards. The church has been at its best when it had no power, no influence, no political standing from the bottom up, carrying the message and the movement of Jesus. That's what changed things. And so William Tyndale came along and he ticked everybody off because they lost all of their power. And so in 1524, I think he fled from, maybe you know this, from England to Germany. And eventually during that time, he completed his English translation for the first time of the New Testament. And then he got sold out by a friend. And ultimately, for for translating the New Testament from Greek and Hebrew into English, he got hung, burned at the stake in about 1536 because they wanted to silence William Tyndale and stop everything right there. But in that period of history, it was too late because they had already lost power. William Tyndale had already done damage during that time and that period. Because here's the thing that ticked them off about William Tyndale more than anything else, talking about the religious leaders and the people who controlled the church of the day. When William Tyndale, here was their whole angst that caused them to burn a guy at the stake. Their whole angst was when he got to the word ekklesia in the Greek New Testament, he translated it correctly. He didn't translate it as a ritualistic gathering place, a sacred place. He, he interpreted it the way the word actually is defined as a movement, as an assembly, as a gathering of people for the world. And so rather than church that comes from the German term that just means a sacred place or a ritualistic gathering place, all of a sudden, just with that word change, this is how, that, how big a deal it was, the fact they were willing to kill a guy. All of a sudden, it moved the idea from the focus on a building, on a sacred people who controlled the scriptures, who controlled everything else. It moved this from a building to the idea of what Jesus intended. A multinational, multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational movement of people to the world. And it was such a big deal and so took the legs out from under their power power, that they were willing to kill William Tyndale to silence him. But here's the deal. William was right. He was 100% right. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16 is the first reference to this new movement that would be known as the church, this ecclesia, this gathering, this movement, this assembling of people around an idea and an event in history. And Jesus gathers his people and they're basically on a hillside and they have this conversation and Jesus says, hey, what are people saying about me? Like, what's the word on the street about me? Which you don't wanna ask that question because inevitably people are like, no, nobody's talking about you. But everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody knew about Jesus. There, there was a huge buzz around what he was doing and, and what had happened, even if it was rumors. And so Jesus is like, what are people saying? And they're like, some say you're, you're a reincarnated Elijah. Some say that you're like a you know, reincarnated John the Baptist. And then Jesus, and it's such a powerful, it makes it really personal. He turns to Peter, who often is getting the answer wrong, but he gives him another shot. He's like, Peter, who do you say I am? What do you think about me? And here's what, Peter says, and Matthew records it in Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, you are the Messiah, or literally the prophet, that what the prophets foretold, what everybody pointed to, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, not Jonah in the whale, different Jonah. 
It's confusing. There's two Josephs, there's two Jonas. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by, by my Father in heaven. And then verse 18, I can't overstate the emotion, the power, what all of this set up. And Jesus said, I tell you that you're Peter and on this rock, or literally on this statement that you just made, that I'm the Christ, the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God, on that statement, that's gonna be the epicenter of this new movement, of this ecclesia. On this rock or that statement, I'm going to build, and here's our word, I'm going to build, literal translation, my ecclesia, my gathering, my assembly, my movement of people, and the gates of hell are not going to be able to overcome it. And he could have said there's gonna be a lot of embarrassing moments in church history and people are gonna try to jack it up and there are gonna be so many things done in my name under the banner of Jesus that I would never sign my name to. But I'm just telling you, when the church comes around what I intended it to be, this message, this event in history and takes everything else aside and makes that the focus and understands this is not about a sacred building. This is not about sacred people who control the scriptures and control the people. This is about my movement for all people. When they come around that, this movement is gonna continue to move because I've birthed it and nothing is gonna be able to stop it. And then Luke writes about the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, spends about 40 days with his followers and they hang out and they have conversations and they talk. And then right before Jesus is about to peace out, he's like, hey, I'm gonna give you something. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. I'm not gonna be here. And you're gonna take this thing forward. Here was his final instructions to his followers, this group of people, they were gonna launch this brand new movement, this brand new assembly, this, this brand new congregation for the world. In Acts 1.6, Luke records it. And he says this, so when they met together, talking about the disciples, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom of Israel? And we've talked about this a lot. The reason this comes up a lot is because it's all throughout the gospels. They constantly thought Jesus was coming to bring political reform. They constantly thought he was coming to bring a kingdom. The church has struggled with this all the way through the 2000 years of history. Hey, heaven when you die is great. Could you set up a political kingdom right now so we could have power and influence? And so there they are waiting for Jesus to usher in the kingdom and restore Israel and overthrow Rome. And it's gonna be amazing. And Jesus says, verse 17 to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set up by his own authority, but verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And again, they're clues. They're like, yes, that's what we want. Power, influence, a position in this new kingdom, Israel, we want return to what Israel's supposed to be. Rome has marginalized us. Rome has oppressed us. That's exactly what we want. Jesus, we're in. Tell us what you want us to do. And Jesus is like, sit down. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm ushering in. This is a kingdom that's bigger than this world and bigger than Rome. It's bigger than Nero. In fact, he says, instead, you're gonna receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. In the literal like definition, it's a a court term testifies to, proclaims, affirms, basically. Guys, I know you want power. I know you want influence. I know you want me to return Israel. I know you're waiting for me to set up my kingdom. My kingdom's way bigger than the here and now. And and here's actually what I'm giving you power to do and what I'm tasking you to do. You are gonna be witnesses of, you are gonna affirm, you are gonna proclaim and testify to me. And I'm gonna give you power to do it and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're like, that's cool. We know Jerusalem, we know all the roads. And then you're gonna go to Judea and they're like, ah, we don't don't go to Judea often. That's a little bit out of our comfort zone. I, I want you to go there too. 
And you're going to go to Samaria. And they're like, no, 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 we don't go to Samaria. We roll our windows up and we get into Samaria. That's not our area of the town. We're not like those people. We don't share the same culture and language. No, no, no. You're going to Samaria too. And then I can't tell you how mind-blowing this was to them. And, and you're going to take this to the ends of the world. And they're like, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. I mean, you rose from the dead, so we shouldn't ask questions. It's obviously you have control of things, but the ends of the world, we haven't graduated from junior college in Jerusalem. We have no education. I, I'm sure you're paying attention. We have no money. We have no influence, no political standing. Rome won't let us be a part of anything that they're doing. How in the world are we gonna take this to the world? I mean, Samaria is bad enough, but to the world, to all people, us, do you know us? And I think they're like, Jesus, come on. All due respect, do you know how big the world is? And Jesus is like, you guys don't even know how big the world is. I'm just telling you, this is a new dynamic. It's a new movement. It's a new way. If you will gather around this simple message and idea and event, the fact that I'm alive after I was dead, and if you take this and move this forward, it's going to cover the entire globe and it's going to change the world. You guys, as unimpressive as you are, you're gonna change the world. And they did. After Jesus had this conversation, he peaced out and they, the disciples, they go back to Jerusalem and they spend time there, like, okay, power, Holy Spirit, what is, what is this gonna look like? How's this gonna go down? And so they prayed and they waited and they prayed and they waited. And finally, Pentecost comes. And this was the Jewish festival or Jewish, Jewish feast where basically all of the Jewish people and all of the Jewish converts it descended on Jerusalem. In fact, the writers say there were 14 different regions in Jerusalem. Now we think like cities, you think Tampa, you think Manhattan, you think whatever. This is, these are small cities, even though Jerusalem is kind of the hub. So you have a lot of people in one place and there's tons of energy, there's tons of excitement. And it says that as the disciples are meeting together, all of a sudden what Jesus predicted and promised happened. That in some kind of special way, the power and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God came on them in a, a special way. And they go into the streets of Jerusalem with all of these, this activity around these feasts and around what was going on over Pentecost. And they begin to speak the languages of all the different people from their regions of the country or the world. And so here you have these uneducated, unimpressive, Jesus called them and selected them anyway, going into the streets and suddenly they could speak in the languages of all of these other people. And so rightfully so, people are looking at them going, how in the world is this happening? How do Galileans with no education who've never left Jerusalem, how are they speaking in all of the different tongues and languages of all of these different regions of the world? Like, this is crazy. And there was so much power and so much excitement. And imagine all these people in one place. You couldn't get past it. You couldn't deny it. You couldn't walk away. Even if you didn't attribute it to God, you're like, something is happening in this city. And there was so much momentum. And here's what's really important. I just wanna bring this out real quick. What was significant about this moment is this wasn't a Jewish message any longer. This wasn't a Jewish movement any longer. They didn't go into the streets of Jerusalem and speak in a language. 
They went into the streets of Jerusalem and they spoke in all of the languages because on opening day of the local church, Jesus wanted to make it really, really clear. This is not about a nation specific thing. This is not a background specific thing. This is not a socioeconomic specific thing. I am birthing something brand new and it is multiracial, multinational, multicultural, multigenerational for the world. And when you understand what it means to follow Jesus. The church is going to be the most diverse gathering of people in all of culture, in all of the world. And that's how it was launched on day one. This is one of the things that we struggle to interpret. And honestly, in large parts of the West, we just edited out of a lot of the writings and the letters in the New Testament. You look at the New Testament, so much of the writing was Jesus came, Jesus lived, perfect life, he died, he walked out of a grave alive. And now when you embrace and understand that and begin to move with the church, the church becomes the most powerful reconciling force in all of culture. It's why we talk a ton as a church about diversity. And that might be new to you. I'm telling you, it is all throughout the New Testament. And you know why? Because one of the most powerful evidences of the spirit of God is bringing people together who have nothing in common other than the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And racially, they're different. Geographically, they're different. Ethnically, they're different. Stylistically, they're different. Socioeconomic status, they're different. Where they came from and who they were raised by is different. Different liturgies, different styles. But listen, you cannot get away from the fact that this is the epicenter of discipleship. And one of the ways that you measure what God is doing through the local church is its growing diversity. And the reason we have lost sight of this is because Jesus never intended that there would be black churches and white churches. Jesus intended that there would be the church. It's why it's a central value of what we are doing here because it is a part of Jesus' message. It is a movement for all people just as Jesus predicted. And so there they are and they're watching this in the city with all of this power and all of this energy and all of this emotion. And so Peter gets up and decides this is a great time to preach a message. And Peter, Peter gets up in the city of Jerusalem and preaches the first message on kickoff Sunday of the church, the opening day of the local church. And here's what he said in Acts chapter one, or Acts chapter two, verse 22, Peter records it. There's thousands of people in the city. There's so much energy. And he says, people of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which many of them had seen which God did among you through him as you yourselves know, because you've been here, you lived in the city, you heard about it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, deliberate foreknowledge. And again, this is Peter speaking to thousands of people crowded in the cities who, who are wondering what in the world is going on and how is this even happening? And in this moment, Peter's going, none of it's by accident. Jesus was not caught by surprise trying to figure out how he could call an audible when people are taking him to, and that, I, no pun intended, taking him to Golgotha to crucify him. All of it was a part of what Jesus had determined from the very beginning. And then it says that with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And listen, this is not years later. This is less than two months later. This is potentially 40 days later. These guys, they knew Jesus. They had been in crowds with Jesus. They had watched miracles. Some of their mother-in-laws had been healed. All of this is personal. 
And so Peter said, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then verse 32, Peter says this, and God raised this Jesus to life. And this is so important, don't miss this. And we are witnesses of this. I just wanna highlight this. I talk about it a lot, but it's worth noting again for some of you who struggled with faith and wrongly you were taught that the foundation of Christianity is the Bible. It's not. You were wrongly taught that the foundation of Christianity was theology. It's not. You were wrongly taught that it's, it's all of the other things that you associate with church. Just so you know, none of those things would have even been birthed or survived Easter weekend without them being witnesses to a resurrected savior. And that's the thing that changed everything. And so the reason that we continue to worship and gather in Jesus' name is not because of what Jesus taught. It's because of what Jesus did. On Easter weekend, you've heard me talk about it. Mid-weekend, everybody had given up hope. There were no Jesus followers. His teachings didn't make sense. Messiahs and sons of gods are not crucified. And then by Monday morning, everybody changed their view of things because Jesus went into a grave and then casually removed the stone, folded up his clothes and walked into the streets to have breakfast with people. And they realized they served a resurrected savior. And in that moment, it validated and authenticated all of his teachings and everything that he said. But Peter wanted to make it clear and it still needs to be made clear to you. The foundation of our faith is not that we believe something. The foundation was that individuals witnessed something and the moment they realized they were standing face to face with a resurrected savior, it meant that everything was true. And in this moment, Peter's going, we saw it, we witnessed it. And it's why I'm proclaiming it to you in the streets of Jerusalem. In verse 33, they exalted him to the right hand of God and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that has been poured out with what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus. And I just, I just wanna highlight this one more time. This is Peter preaching in the same city among thousands of people with people in the crowds that he could probably identify and lock eyes with who he knew were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus. Knowing that if this message went bad, they could drag him away and he would experience the same fate. This is the same Peter that was denying Jesus to elementary age girls in courtyards when Jesus was arrested and tried. And suddenly, this is just an interesting juxtaposition. Here's Peter in the streets with all of these people, thousands knowing that his life could be at stake, who was cowering and running and denying Jesus just a few weeks later. And he says this, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Oh, by the way, I contact Frank in the back. I know you were there a couple weeks ago. You crucified him, which Peter, where in the world do you get this kind of boldness? And I've said it before, this is so interesting. We've lost sight of it 2,000 years later because no matter what the religious leaders had the capability to do, when you serve a leader that predicts his death and walks out of a grave alive, what in the world do you have to be afraid of? And there he is in the city, like, do what you want. I don't know what he's gonna do, but he brought himself back from the dead. He might do the same for me. You crucified him, this one who's Lord and Messiah. And you guys know what I'm talking about. And I think a silence fell over this crowd of thousands of people. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were moved at a soul level in a way that 
they couldn't deny. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? How do we respond? What are we supposed, what are we supposed to do next with this message? And I love what Peter says in recorded in verse 38 by Luke. Peter replied, attend church regularly. If you didn't laugh, you should read the Bible. That's not what Peter wrote. Listen, that wouldn't have even made any sense. Nobody would have even understood that because that's not what Jesus wants. And what we'll find is Jesus or none of the apostles ever de-emphasize the gathering of the church. But here's what they understood. The church from day one, which was not about a building or sacred place, was about a people, but they were to gather consistently for strength around the preaching of the scriptures, around worship, around community. And as they gathered for strength, then they were to scatter for light, to be light in culture, to be light in their neighborhoods, to change the world. And you can't do one without the other. If you just simply gather for strength and never scatter to be light, you'll end up becoming pharisaical and insulary and impossible to be around. You've grown up in churches like that. And you can't just scatter for light and de-emphasize the gathering together as the church because you won't have the strength necessary to do what God's called you to do. It's both and, but here's what they understood. It's not about attending something. It's about we are something. And we gather for strength and then we scatter for light into the culture. And so when they recognize all this and Peter preaches all of this, this is their natural response. Peter replied, repent, change your mind about God, about Jesus and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, talking about the repentance. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I love this. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And, and the all who are far off is you. And the promise to all who are far off is me, that this would be a movement that was gonna move and nothing was gonna stop it. And every single individual who was far from God, who felt like they were out, who felt like they could never have a relationship, they never have a connection, that as this movement began to move, it was gonna touch every continent in every language, in every culture, in every generation, and nothing was going to be able to stop it. 2,000 years later, a third of the world would connect Jesus as Messiah, a guy who grew up in Nazareth as a no-name carpenter, didn't travel more than 30 miles from his home, never wrote a book, and 2,000 years later, he has dominated the globe in every language, every continent, in every generation, because nothing can stop this movement, a multicultural multinational, multiracial, for all people movement. And Jesus made a promise that my movement is going to keep moving because the gates of hell cannot stop it. The hell of the inquisitions, the hell of the crusades, the hell of crazy religious people, the hell of the tragic stuff you've walked through or the things that people have done in Jesus' name that are so embarrassing. As bad as all of that is, there is always gonna be a remnant of people that are gonna come around this message, this movement, remove all of the other stuff and make Jesus the lead story. And when they do, my movement is gonna move because the gates of death and hell are not going to be able to stop it because when I make a promise, I fulfill my promises. And all whom the Lord our God will call those, verse 41, who accepted this message in that moment were baptized, which has always been the practice of the local church. It's not for salvation. It's an outward sign of what God's done. And, and if you've embraced Jesus, you should do it. 
baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I mean, again, not a big city. Can you imagine if like two out of every three of your friends are like, we're with Jesus? What? The momentum, the power, the disruption, the confusion, the energy, 3,000 people from 14 different regions who could have walked to the tomb and disproven everything that Peter just wrote about. And, and undoubtedly secular historians like Josephus would have written about it. Josephus didn't write about it because they couldn't do it. And in that moment, they knew there was no other option. He is Lord and Messiah and Savior. And they began to place their faith and trust in Christ. And the city erupted because from the very beginning, when it's centered around the right things, the church is a big idea, a big deal, and a big movement. And on that day, kickoff Sunday, opening day of the local church, it all got started. Thousands, 3,000 people, probably more, embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior and Messiah, just as Jesus predicted. And do you know what I think 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, what I feel like we've lost sight of? What no longer connects us that connected the church in the first century as it was getting launched? The church was never formulated around common interests or common preferences. They didn't unite because of political agendas. They, they weren't knitted together because of liturgy or worship style or, or their preferences. They, they didn't come together because they shared the same race or ethnicity or background. There were slaves and free. There was Jew and Greek. There were Samaritans. There was women and children, which is crazy. And they all came together because they understood what we have so easily forgotten, which is why we have a thousand denominations. It's why we divide over the minutia of theology that honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't really even matter that much in light of heaven. It's why we have churches for different races. It's why we're all over the place. It's why we even have churches aligning around political agendas as if that's what Jesus came to usher in. They understood this idea. All of us are different. We're different backgrounds. We view different things. We have different preferences. We look different, different skin shades. We don't even speak all the same languages, but here's what we have in common, that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God. And that's what united them. That's what brought the church together. And you study history, the surrounding villages would look in awe because how in the world could these people get along and come together? Jesus. And 2,000 years later, that's what the church should be fighting for. And in every generation all over the globe, there's been the remnant of that because Jesus promised he's gonna build his church. But from the very beginning, they understood we don't go to church. Yeah, we gather for strength, we scatter for light, but it's bigger than that. We are the church. We are the movement of God. This isn't about a sacred place, sacred people, hierarchy. This is about a movement of people that changed the world. And on opening day, there were no religious people. It, it, the church wasn't for church people. None of those existed. They knew so clearly that the church was for the world, that everybody was invited in. And in fact, Jesus called people to follow before they even believed. And the church wasn't about style or about ritualistic gatherings or about preferences, about location. It's centered around the fact that Jesus was a resurrected Christ, the son of the living God. Go, change the world. And they recognized that the mission was to create followers of Jesus and tear away every other unnecessary barrier that would get in the way. And from day one, there has always been a remnant that refused to let go of that. That recognized that the movement must move. There has always been a remnant that refused to make this about a building, 
make this about a sacred place or sacred locations. And there's been missionaries and there's been Jesuits and there's been people who built hospitals and cared for the poor and sacrificed their life. There's been church planners. There's been people that risked and gave up their lives to translate the Bible. And there's been people with no fanfare and no applause and no praise who have given their lives Bible smugglers who wanted to keep the movement moving. There was men like William Tyndale who stood up against the authority of the church in his generation, in his culture, and gave up his life so that common people could understand the magnificence and the brilliance of the story of Jesus. There has always been a remnant that understood that this is not about sacred places. It's why I joked about this first service, but our CC students, they meet in here every Wednesday. You would not believe the crazy stuff that happens in this building because this is not God's house. You are. This is not a sacred place as much as I'm shattering your childhood theology. I'm just telling you, whatever you think of as the most sacred place in the world, it's a church, it's a cathedral, it's placing my feet on the, you know, in the Holy of Holies or, or you know, in the Holy Land, all of that's great. But you just need to know what, the, what paradigm shifting movement this was that Jesus launched because now the most sacred place that you could think of where you set your feet does not hold a candle to the sacred people to your right and left who are made in the image of God. That's the most sacred thing in the world now. And your love for God is born out on how you treat other sacred image bearers. No longer is there a temple that you go to. You don't need a temple. Now you are portable temples with the spirit of God inside of you, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead to go and change culture and rep Jesus. That's what we've been called to. And there has always been a remnant that understood when we gather around that idea. We're the church. And there's always been a remnant that understood that. And what I love about so many of you, I'm not just saying this, is that so many of you as a church understand that. And you're doing something different in our community and you're reorienting and rebranding and causing people to rethink the local church and ultimately relationship with Jesus. And you understand this so well, that when you sacrificially, and nobody pats you on the back and nobody's gonna applaud you or know about it, and you give to the community, you're the church and you understand that when you gather with a group of second graders in a small group and there's a million different things you could do with your time and none of them seem like they're listening and you got so many important things to do, but you are anchoring in their heart the message that has changed human hearts for 2000 years that God's love is relentless and unending and never runs out in that moment. You are the church. When you gather in a community group, and you don't feel like you have anything to offer and you can't find Leviticus in your Bible if your life depended on it. And somebody is going through a difficult struggle and they have no idea how they're gonna make it to the other side. And you empathize and you pray and you come alongside of them. You understand that in that moment, you're the church. That's what Jesus predicted. That's what Jesus dreamt up. That's what Jesus is creating. And it's why we're gonna to continue to look to the future we're gonna to continue to dream big, have bold faith. We're gonna to continue to dig off religious people and open the doors wide open. This is a movement for the world. And we're gonna invest in the next generation. We're gonna train leaders and we're gonna do everything that we can because we agree with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the resurrected savior, the son of the living God. And so as we end, I don't know what comes to your mind and I don't know what you feel when you hear the word church. My hope is by the end of the series, 
I'm just getting started. You're gonna think differently. You're gonna think what Jesus launched, multiplying, multinational, multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational movement to the world. And as jacked up as it's been, and you've got your own stories, when it's on mission, it's a movement to the world. It changed families, it changes cities, it changes communities. And and I just wanna press this one last thing and I gotta be done, but this is so important because I think we lose sight of this. I think it causes us to dream very little dreams and not pray very big, bold prayers. We'll talk about this next week. But here's what Jesus promised. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna start my movement in the church. And, And those who follow and place their trust in me, I'm going to give them my spirit, which is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Can we just come around the fact that nobody has power like Jesus' power? Nobody raises up kings and kingdoms and leaders and presidents and then decides he's done and moves them to the stage. Nobody raises up nations and puts them back down. Nobody else speaks things into existence and they happen. Nobody else told dead people to stop being dead and they listen, command nature and command and nature backed up and said, we've got to obey that voice. Nobody can touch blind and they see. Nobody can make the lame walk. Nobody can raise the dead with the word and nobody can predict that I'm going to die and then I'm going to walk out of the grave alive and I'm going to launch a movement to history and actually do it. Nobody has power like Jesus power. Nobody can raise a marriage from the dead like Jesus can. Nobody can restore a dream. Nobody can reconcile a relationship you thought was dead a long time ago. Nobody can reach that individual you think there is no way they would ever move in the direction of God. Nobody could turn upside down culture like Jesus. And I think we pray too small and we dream too small and we move to this place. We are so inoculated that we forget the power that raised Jesus out of a grave is inside of you in the church when it's on mission is the most powerful force in any community, neighborhood, and world. And so as we end, this is my pet peeve, stop praying for a movement of God. Just move. God already started a movement 2,000 years ago. Our task is just to get on mission with that. Remove all of the other crap and make it about Jesus. Simple message, simple idea, historic event, changed everything. Go with that. It'll change your family. It'll change your community. It'll change our city. God might do something through the hundreds of people that are part of Center Point Church that will turn this area upside down. If you think that's not possible, you do not understand the resurrection power of Jesus. Would you guys stand with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing. In this moment, I pray that you would contextualize, personalize, and do your thing in hearts. I know that our experience is all over the map. I cannot talk about this without getting over the top, just ridiculously passionate about what you've launched. And there is, so much angst in me about what you've called us to. And so I just pray that you would help me to be faithful. I pray that we would embody just a little bit of what Peter experienced on Pentecost weekend. What in the world do we have to fear? We serve you. And I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that you would move individually in our hearts knowing how this lands with us and and what you're asking us to repent of. God, I pray that you would do something special even through this group. And I thank you right now in this moment that despite all the craziness around the world, that your church will not be stopped. And there will always be a remnant and you are gonna do your thing until you come back. Help us to be a part of that. And we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name, amen.
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.